being here this morning. Happy Mother's Day. And I say that while my mom is uh, basking in the sun in Myrtle Beach. And so I'm praying that it will be sunny for her. That's my gift to her uh, today. Uh, and, you know, it really would be futile to, um, uh, to measure the impact of mothers uh, on the lives of the children, the people that they influence. I was reading a biography of Charles Spurgeon who, who attributed his piety um, solely to his mother's influence and impact in uh, his life. Uh, his father was a tenor pastor, and he went along preaching here and there, and he said it was his mother who was at home who trained him and instilled in him a love for prayer and the word of God and, and of course, the impact that that has made. Uh, so uh, your job, if your mother is tough, it's hard. You don't need me to tell you that. You, you know that. You remember that. Uh, but it is a blessing, the call that God has given you, how you not only impact your child's life, but you really impact society uh, as a whole in the character and through the reach of your children. So let me just uh, say to you, one day out of the year is not enough to thank you or, or honor you, but it's a good place to start. Happy Mother's Day. And uh, if you're a mother here this morning, we do have a gift for you as you leave out here. Uh, one of the men hopefully will get that to you on your way out. And we pray that you'll have a blessed day. God will just encourage you. Now with that, uh, let me invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter number 2. The book of Philippians chapter 2. I wanted to share with you, with our church um, family that uh, has been praying for Stephanie Hoffman over the past months that received an email Friday night that she was uh, able to go home. And so we just praise the Lord for that. Many of you that's been praying for her, she's um, involved with Deerfoot, and, and many of you know her. I don't know her personally, but we've been praying for her on Wednesday nights here um, for a long time. And uh, just seeing God uh, make those uh, uh, improvement in her health, and we just praise him for that. It's good to just stop and say, thank you, Lord. All right? And so uh, I want to do that now, if you will. Uh, and a new member uh, here today, Lucy. So Lucy Eaton, uh, hiding back there. So praise God for that. It's good to see you guys. Let's pray together. Father, what a joy it is to be in your house. What a joy it is to be together. And Father, we, we're so thankful for the way you answer prayers, the way you work and move. We just rejoice in that. And so we just pray for uh, you to continue to work in many, many other lives. I think of Van uh, this morning, especially, just pray for him. Pray for our service, our time together, that you would be glorified and encouraged. Pray for our mothers, Lord, that you would let this time be a time of encouragement to them and uh, and a blessing as well. In Jesus' name, amen. We have your Bible open uh, to Philippians chapter number 2, one of, um, one of the greatest sections that Paul has penned, uh, especially when it comes to the the humiliation and exaltation of Christ, beginning in verse number 6 through 11. Uh, Lord willing, we'll look at this this week and next week. Uh, the passage itself is set in, uh, in the tone or, or as a reorienting uh, work in the life of the Philippians, and I think in our lives as well, to reorient our minds, our thoughts towards others. Um, and we've talked about that in the past here, chapter number one, how the gospel transforms us. 
It is a, it is a power. It is a work. It isn't just a message. It is a life-changing message which transforms us from sin and darkness, from being alienated from God to being in fellowship, communion with God, giving us a new life, a new heart, or a new creation in Christ Jesus. And with that comes new desires and a new way of living. Uh, and you'll see that even later on as he tells us to work out your salvation with fear and trembling in verse number 12. So is it just a message? It is the message which transforms our lives. That's why we preach it and teach it and cling to it and remind ourselves of that. Uh, and part of what it does in our lives is the gospel reorients ourselves or, or gives us an other's orientation as we have seen already in Paul's life in chapter number one, as his care for them and now his encouragement for them to live that out among themselves, to think of others and to live in communion with others. One Puritan writer said this, self-denial and true love are inseparable. Self-love makes a monopoly of all things to its own interest. And this is the most opposite to Christian affection and communion, which puts all in one bank. If every one of the members should seek its own things and not the good of the whole body, what a miserable distemper would it cause the body? Another way of saying it is seeing both the disaster of self-love and self-interest and the beauty of true communion and fellowship and unity in the body of Christ. And I think that's what is being drawn out here. You know, as you think about that, even um, reminded back in Psalms 133, as Israel would go up to the song, uh, to the temple and the feast, uh, they, they sung these songs of ascent. And as they would go up to Jerusalem, they would begin praising God, some of which were songs of confession and others were songs of praise. In the midst of those, in Psalms 133, the writer reminds us of the beauty and the pleasantness of fellowship and communion that we have. He said, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the collars of his robe. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there, 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 Guess what part of the country you're from? There the Lord has commanded the blessings, life evermore. He's showing us the beauty and the pleasantness of fellowship and communion. And we live in a world that we see the absence of that, not just only in the world, but also in the church as well. We find the, the tensions and the, and the bickering and, the, and all the battles between one another in the body of Christ and and it may be something of what Paul is dealing with here in the church of Philippians. Some suggest, nevertheless, I just want to remind you that Christ's prayer for his people was that they would dwell together in unity and in harmony. Your mind in his high priestly prayer, John 17, as he prays for them, that they would be one. Just as Father, you're in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me so there is a pleasantness there's a beauty there's an attractiveness of our fellowship and communion together of us looking beyond our own selves and looking and seeing others and their needs as well as i said we see back in verse look back with me verse number 
27 of chapter 1, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And do not be frightened in anything by your opponents, that is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also should suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So setting up the the context of what he's speaking about unity and harmony he's already encouraged them or or instructed them to strive together to work together in the, the same direction in the same way for the same common goal and it is true isn't it in the middle of suffering in the middle of difficulty or trials that we face and and hardships that that it can really solidify it can strengthen our bonds together it can strengthen our fellowship just as, as someone going through the same difficulty as you go through or those who are in the military serve together alongside each other, they have this kind of brotherly affection, this bond through all the difficulties and miseries uh, of that experience. There's a closeness which comes from that. Some of you uh, and your spouses experience that in, in the difficulties and hardships of your life and your relationships. And through those, God has united you closer together. Well, it's also true as, as uh, those hardships and difficulties and sufferings come that, uh, that it can always or it can also tear us apart. It can separate us or polarize us or, or pit us against each other. We should probably say amen at that because we live in a society over the past, past four years where we have seen nothing but a polarization, a pulling apart through all the chaos that goes on around us. It isn't just in the world. It isn't just in our government. It's in our small towns and communities and in our local fellowships. Difficulty at times brings us together, but it also has that great temptation to tear us apart, pull us apart. And we don't know to what degree it's happening here in Philippi. We do know in chapter number four, if you want to turn over with me. That there seems to be some, some rift, some problem, some thing that's going on, some disagreement that Paul doesn't go in detail. Verse number 2 of chapter 4, he says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And so he calls you out by name and says there's some kind of disagreement, there's something going on that they need to come together on and have some sense of unity for the fellowship of the of the church and communion. And so it is in our own life, we're brought together and we're called to strive together, to work together in harmony and communion and unity, not only in the local church, uh, but also in our families as well. But I want you to notice first, he deals with the subject in verse number one and two, through laying down the motivation for our fellowship. He does so by listing five statements or five questions, five things that there needs to be no answer to. And what he's doing in verse number one and two is he's, he's trying to, to spur on our minds. It's kind of one of those things when you ask your kids a question that they already know the answer to. 
you know, like, did you do that or whatever they ask. And it doesn't need to be answered. You're the only one in the room. The only one could have did that. Paul's doing that with our own our own minds here. He's trying to spur us on and get us to think deeper about what God has given to us. So he begins saying, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, some translations, your translation may say, is there any comfort in Christ? How would you answer that? couple of you think that there is the rest of you are still kind of out debating or wonder if you should say anything out loud is this kind of like participation thing going on or it is worth saying that he is calling them to quit thinking about yourselves quit putting yourselves first your own interests first you see that later on but he doesn't begin by stating that he begins by taking your mind from from all of you and all of what's going on he says set it here is there any comfort in christ Now, we know, and Paul tells us in Corinthians, that God is the God of how much comfort? All comfort. There's no comfort, no true, healthy, lasting, eternal comfort found outside of God. He is the God of all comfort, who is able to comfort you in all of your circumstances, all of your trouble. And isn't that a blessing? That's something to think about. Uh, that there's no problem that you face, no trial that you'll go through, no, no depth or dark valley that you'll ever be in, that God doesn't have the right comfort for it. God isn't able to meet you and strengthen you and encourage you. He is the God of all comfort. And he's basically telling these Philippian churches, is there any comfort found in Christ? Well, we know the answer is, yes, there's all comfort found in Christ. Because it is through Christ, it is, He is the means by which the Father bestows His goodness upon us and extends His comfort to us. It's because we are in Him. It's because of what He has done for us that we may receive all comfort that God has. He's a God of all comforts. What He's telling the church here, is there any comfort found in Christ? Well, the answer is that yes, all sorts of comfort is worth us thinking about that and setting our minds on that. The discipline of of thinking through all that we have received in Christ Jesus and all that we continue to receive in him. But secondly, he says in verse number one, not only is there any encouragement or comfort found in Christ, is there any comfort from love? How would you answer that? Again, we might be a little skittish to wonder what you're wondering what I'm asking from you, but I'm just asking you simply what Paul is saying here. Is there any comfort found in love? Is there any consolation, any reward? You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't, you don't even have to read your Bible. You don't even have had to read your Bible all the way through to find out the motivation behind God's gift of salvation to you, the forgiveness of sin, the, the inheritance in heaven, all of that. The motivation behind all of that is what? Love. Isn't that good? The love of God extended to you? I mean, Christ sets the bar so high as if it's not enough that he loved us and gave his only begotten son. But Christ sets the bar so high in John chapter number 17 when he says, You have loved them with the very same love you've loved me. How do you like that? Is there any reward in love? Well, all that you have from God, all of the goodness of God is a reward and comfort and consolation in love. 
Paul's not dismissing the reality of their suffering that they're going through. He's not dismissing the, the fractions on the outside and on the inside and all that. He just simply said, let's just sit down and think about it, folks. Is there any comfort in Christ? Yes. Is there any reward in love? Absolutely. Absolutely. He goes further to say not only is there any comfort in love, is there any participation in the Spirit? And if you're saved this morning and you're born again, it's because of the Spirit of God. It's his work in you. Open your eyes, convict you of sin, sealed you until the day of redemption. He is the earnest down payment of the inheritance, the thing which we anticipate, our giftedness, our blessedness, our usefulness, our sanctification, all of that through the work of the Spirit of God. But not just in you, but look around you. It's the same Spirit that works in all of us. The one who opens our eyes to the depths and beauty and wonder of what God has done for us in Christ. That's the Spirit of God. Is it work? And Paul's saying, is, is there any fellowship, any communion in the Spirit? How would you answer that? Well, absolutely. I mean, you guys are on a roll. This is a good question and answer kind of thing. Well, is there any affection or sympathy? I know sometimes we get to talking about agape love and we say, well, it's disconnected from our emotions, right? Don't we say that sometimes? Well, you're looking at me like maybe we don't say that. Maybe that's just me and, and I'm trying to find my emotions. One's lost, the other's looking for it or whatever. But isn't there true affection in Christ? Not just affection for God, but affection for humanity, affection for one another. Isn't there sympathy and compassion that the Holy Spirit stirs up in your heart? These believers and whatever's going on in their life, whatever. He's saying, think about that. Think about how God has worked in you. Think about the compassion and the the mercy and, and all the things God has done for you that you have received by his good hand. You've been a recipient of God's grace that he has lavished out on you, not only to believe, we read earlier, and and to suffer for him, but all that he gives continually in the midst of believing and suffering, and that is the comfort of Christ himself and the love and the reward of that and the participation in the Spirit and just the, the simple affection, the godly affection which he gives us and sympathy. And if that were not enough motivation, verse number two, he adds to this. To a church who loved Paul and wanted to make him happy. You ever had anybody in your life you wanted to make happy? Maybe, maybe it was your mother. It's Mother's Day and maybe your love for your mother, your admiration for your mother... Or maybe it's your father or some other authority figure in your life. You, you wanted to please them. I remember growing up, I had a, my grandfather, my papa, I say grandfather so you know who I'm talking about. Um, he used to, when I would get in trouble, he would you'd sit you down and give you the talk. Has anyone ever had that? Some of you probably wished you'd have the talk. You had the other side. But I just be honest, the moment he opened his mouth, I was thinking to myself, I wish Mamma would just beat me and get, a, get this thing over with. I, I did not like the thought of breaking his heart and disappointing him. Because he would begin his talk with, you know, son, that was wrong. I'm disappointed. I don't ever remember if he whipped us. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. 
but I hated the thought of disappointing him. Paul is telling this group of believers, you have loved me, you have communicated to me, you have sacrificially given to my needs, but if you truly want to make me happy, if you truly want to know what fills up my joy, well, that is you live together in fellowship and harmony and unity that you care for one another. And he lays down in verse number one and two almost this this kind of motivation, this stirring on to where there's no other option at the end of it where they can't argue, they can't skate out of this, but you don't understand. He's, He's laying down all the graces that they've received so much so that if we set our mind on these things, we meditate on these things, then how can we walk in our own pride and our own arrogance? He's telling them, let this be your motivation. Let this spur you on and stir your thoughts because it is in our thoughts that our actions are, are birthed. It is the way we think. It is the way we process the world around us. It is the way we look at one another that dictates how we treat one another. Later on, Paul will tell them that we're to think on these things that are noble and pure and just and peaceable. And, and, and these things are meant to inform and instruct the way we treat and the way we live out this life, the way we treat one another, the way we live out this life. He's saying, let this motivation set you right and set you towards one another. That is the comfort, the grace found in God and your mutual care for me. But not only do we see this, we see his message found in verse number 2 through verse number 4. Notice he says, if all of these things are true, in which you agreed this morning, confessing amen, some of you, some of you nodded internally, I could tell. So if that's true, if you agree with what Paul is saying, if you agree what the word of God is saying here, then let the rest of this flow in your life. That's pretty simple, right? So I agree with that, and this should be displayed in my life, is what he's saying. Complete my joy, and how are we going to do that? He says, I want you to be of the same mind. Really, have you, think the same way. And I, I take all of these to be uh, him saying the same thing, just in different ways. Or they go together, and there may be a little variance here in these three statements, but I kind of take them all just kind of explaining each other. He says, I want you to think the same way. He's not saying that you're to be kind of like copycats in the sense of you're all to like whatever the same thing you're like. You're all to like purple and, and, and this flower or that flower and all of you to be, be the same. He's not calling for that. But he's saying there ought to be a similarity. There ought to be a commonness among the way we think. If Christ is in you, the Holy Spirit is in you, and the Holy Spirit is in me, he's, he's working in our life, there ought to be a unity, a uniformity in the way we think. And, and part of that is fleshed out here in the second part of this. Think the same way. Having the same love. Much of our problems in the world and, and the church and even in our homes would be if we, we lived by these principles, wouldn't it? If we loved each other the same, it fleshed out the same, thinking the same way, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Towards what? What are we to be in the same accord and, and, and of one mind and the same love and, 
and think the same way, what is the subject? We're just supposed to be blank, all of us blank, and, and be all blank together, I guess. But he doesn't say that, does he? He explains what he means by this, and we're to think the same way, have the same love, and it is a, a thinking and a, and, a, and a love and a manifestation that, that is seen in the way we help, the way we love one another. Verse number four explains it for us, not only as we take care of our own business, but also as we consider the interest and care of one another. Basically what he's saying is that we're to count others more significant than yourself. Now, if you're thinking that, and you're thinking that, it might make it a lot easier to get together in the middle when things don't always work out, when there's trouble. I find that most of the things I struggle with, knowing I had to preach this over the past weeks, most of the struggles I had in, in some ways in my mind is I see myself going the wrong way at it, knowing that the fault lies here. Because the very thing that destroys us is our self-love or self-preservation or self-regard. Notice what he says. We're to do nothing, in verse number 3, from selfish ambition or conceit. We're not to live in a, a bloated, with a bloated ego of our self. He already mentioned this about the enemies. Uh, of his enemies earlier on they preach christ out of poor motives out of evil motives selfish motives he's saying basically there is this desire to promote yourself above all else to pitch yourself against anyone who might seem to be your equal or or seem to be uh to be in competition with you everything becomes a competition and you must win it is to promote your own name i'll give to this but as long as i'm acknowledged for giving to this or i'll serve in this way as long as i'm acknowledged as serving in this way or i i want to do this this is my will this is what i want and all of that is promotion of ourselves Calvin says one of our greatest curses, one of our natural tendencies is a, is a self-love. A self-love. Selfish ambition is to, to pursue us and our importance and our ways and our ideas above anyone else's. After all, I mean, I'm just saying my ideas are a lot better than yours. You know, that's kind of what it says. You don't say that out loud, do you? Isn't it amazing that pride and arrogance is one of the most distasteful sins and vices that we so easily see in others? Don't we? I mean, I'll just be honest with you. I voted for the guy, but our last president was reeking with it. One thing he knew how to do was promote himself. Still does. It's distasteful. And yet it is one of the most subtlest and one of the most unseen sins in our own lives. We're blinded to it. Others see it. We don't. Oftentimes how it goes. The selfish ambition, conceit, or your translations say empty conceit or empty glory. Literal, the idea of just... It's a shell. There's no substance. He's saying that we're not to move in that way. We're not to live out and act among one another with this selfish ambition or conceit. 
not to walk in the flesh and to, uh, to, to demand our own ways. And, and really, that is, that is one of the, the tensions that we find even in our common relationships, isn't it? Those of you who are married, what does most of your problem come from? Selfishness? I want my way. She wants her way. My way's better, of course. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> it's usually not better. <laughs> Confession is good for the soul, Tim. But isn't a lot of our problem and trouble because we refuse to care about other people more than ourselves? And the gospel frees us from that curse, doesn't it? The gospel delivers us. Calvin, again, in his little book on the Christian life, if you've never read it, I would just encourage you to read it. It's very convicting. We went through it in a men's Bible study uh, and very um, readable. That's what makes it so convicting. He argues that our self-love ruins us with blindness. It erodes the fellowship and unity, mutual love and service we can have from one another. In ways he he describes it like this: we we tend to de uh, we we tend to hide our own vices from others. In some ways, because we live in this promotion of self and in this vain glory seeking, our own devices we have to either hide or 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 put down or or actually describe them as virtues. Has anybody ever done that? And not only do we hide our vices from others, we tend to, to see others who God has gifted and, and blessed in certain ways. And we, because we admire those and wish we were gifted that way, we tend to despise them and downplay them. As if to say, oh yeah, I know they got that going on, but, but you, you know, really, look at all this other stuff. Because life living out verse number three at the first part of this is nothing more than a, a constant competition. And not only do we downgrade the gifts that God has given others, especially when we wish to possess them, but we exaggerate the vices in others. Downplaying our own vices and, and taking those little things. It may be annoying. It's true, probably are annoying. You've probably got a few annoying things too. Well, I can guarantee you do. But we build and we build those things up because we feel threatened by them, because we are so insecure about who we are in Christ, because we're so worried about promoting ourselves and our own glory and our own rights and our own values that we can't look past us and see others. And it's destructive. It's what's going on in the world, right? That's the story of America. It goes on in our town. It goes on in our small little community. And it can go on here as well. It says we're not to live this way. And the gospel frees us from this kind of slavery to an image that isn't even true of ourselves. We're not to act according to the flesh. But as our mind is set upon the graces God gives us, as we think about the motivations and all that God has blessed us with, He's telling us to, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. The answer to pride is, is humility. Now, some of you may know that it was not a virtue in Rome. When Paul was writing, it was not considered something that the Romans were like, oh, yeah, that we need more humility. And 
Caesar was having a class on, on humility leadership, humble leadership, and all the stuff they have today. It's actually thought to be the mindset of slaves, and it was seen as weakness. And yet it is a fitting disposition for us. Scripture tells us that humility comes with the blessing of God and the promise that he will exalt us and he will lift us up. Pride, on the other hand, comes with a reminder that God will humble us and he will put us down. Here he's saying that we're to walk in humility. It's not a self-hating that he's calling for. He's not telling you to deface yourself or self-destruction as sometimes we think the Bible teaches. He's not saying that at all. Basically, he's saying that, that we're to live in a way that is appropriate, not to think too highly of ourselves, but rightly of ourselves. Doesn't the gospel do that? Doesn't it put things in proper perspective? That the goodness, the greatest goodness that you could ever experience in this life, the greatest blessing that could ever be given to you, the the comfort of Christ and love, and all of that is not based upon you, but upon God and his love and his kindness to us who were undeserving. That's the definition of grace, isn't it? That that he has given to us over and over those who were at enmity with him, with no reason within ourselves other than we are his creatures and, and he is a God of love. Did he have to redeem us as he has done so? As our mind reflects on these things, doesn't it correct that idea that the world is revolving around us and we're the greatest thing coming? I know some of you would never say that about yourself might think it sort of or hope other people would think it about you that's even worse but nevertheless it is the gospel that corrects us helps us live in a way in in appropriate proportion to who we are and what god has done for us he says it is in humility that we count others more significant than yourselves do you do that you might say, and, and I might agree with you, well, what if they're not important, more important than me? What if I don't like them? What if I don't like the way they laugh? What if I don't like this about them? What if they were mean and, and, and cruel to me? He's saying that our care for one another, the way we interact with one another, isn't based upon their worthiness, just as you yourself were were given grace by God, goodness by God, not based upon your own worthiness. Actually, the key here is that we are to count, we're to consider, we're to think, we're to add it up. They're more important to me, not because they, they maybe necessarily are or not. That's not even in the equation but because of what we have received by God, because of his goodness towards us. Our fellowship is maintained, our our unity and our communion is rooted in his grace, and because of that, we can count others more important than ourselves. We can count others more important than ourselves, more significant than you. Is that a fearful thing for you? It's like, God, what are you asking for if I don't demand my own rights and I don't make sure I get what's coming to me? What if I spend my time giving of others? Isn't it always just kind of a taking sort of thing? Is that scary? 
in some ways, I guess we're looking at it in the sense of, our, of, of us, our own ambition and our own conceit. It could be a scary thing. And yet here he's telling us that it is the very mind and attitude Christ displayed on the cross. It is how you and I live by faith, trusting God with our lives, trusting God with our futures, trusting God with our needs, not being so self-consumed that we, we don't reach out and help those near us. How do you not know that God has not put you in that situation or that place for that very reason? Again, Calvin in his little book in chapter 2 of that book says, you can't show kindness to God. He is never in need. Oh, but he takes a kindness to himself when you display it and give it to others. When you meet the needs of others. Here he's saying, let us not only look on your own thing. Now let me just say uh, just a moment here what he's not saying here. He's not saying neglect your responsibilities. You and I... We have different responsibilities in the world. God has whatever season of life you're in. We have those things that we are stewards of. God expects us to be faithful. We're to be faithful in those things. Paul tells the Thessalonians that those who are not working, those who need to work, need to go out and work and take care of others. And we find that those who are stealing in the book of Ephesians take care of those things. Responsibilities that we have. Don't let those things go. Sometimes it happens that... We let our own mess go, our own life go, and then we try to butt in the lives of others. He's not saying neglect your own duties. But what he is saying is that that's not all your duty is. That is not all that you're required. Don't just take care of those things that you have to take care of in your own life, but look to the needs of others, care about others, see others, meet the needs of others. Show kindness to those who are made in God's image because kindness was shown to you by God. Grace poured out to you by God. So we are not to look on our own interests, but also on the interest of others. Now it's manifested in verses 5 to 11, but I'm going to save that for next week. Okay? You can see that as Paul gives us that great example in Christ Jesus. I'm going to say this morning, if you don't know who Christ is, you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ, as he says here in verse number six, who was in the form of God, humbled himself, became man, took on a human form, became a slave, not a king as we see it in our world, so they might be obedient unto death, the death of a cross, so that you might have forgiveness of sin. So that you may no longer walk alienated from God and, and separated from him, so that you would no longer walk in your own wisdom and your own ways, but that you would have fellowship with the Father, fellowship with the Son, and, and a fellowship with one another. And it is this that the Bible calls us as Jesus preached, John the Baptist preached, Paul preached, Peter preached. Because of what Christ did, we're to repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you haven't done that this morning, I, I, I urge you even now, put your faith in Why hesitate? Why wait? Why stand outside the mercy and grace of God when it's extended to you through Christ? Surely your own way isn't that good. 
Surely your own efforts and your own self-importance isn't worth it, that you would lose your eternal soul and spend eternity separated from God and from life and outer darkness. Let me just encourage you, put your faith in Christ. You want to talk about that? I'd love to talk to you about that after the service. And for each of us who have received such grace and mercy of Christ, he's saying that let us display it. Let us set our mind on these things. Let it, let it come around and, and affect the way we think. We, we live in a, a world continually with the disease of, of amnesia when it comes to the work of Christ. And that's why God so often keeps telling us to remember, remind, think on these things. And as we think about these things, let us lift up our heads and see those who are around us, their needs, and their good. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. We can gather together. Thank you for those who are here this morning. Just pray that you would bless them and use them. Use this passage in our hearts even this week as we go about this day, as we go about uh, wherever it is we go and our families celebrating. Or, Lord, we just pray that you would be honored in Jesus' name. Amen.